Tonight's Bible reading comes from Matthew uh, chapter 5, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you were someone who spends any time on TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, then it is likely that you, along with the rest of the population, discovered something interesting about men recently. Yes, I know another interesting thing about men. Uh, Specifically, that they think about the Roman Empire way too much. Now, I am one of these men who finds the Roman Empire fascinating. Now, maybe it's because I loved the movie Gladiator as a kid. Maybe it's because I played the game Rome Total War way too much on my PC. Or maybe it's just I happen to actually like history class at school. But for whatever reason, I actually find the Roman Empire so fascinating. Now, just this week, John Dixon released an episode of his podcast where he interviewed Nadia Williams, who is a Roman military historian, which I think is one of the coolest job titles ever. In that interview, John asked Nadia what the primary cultural values of the Romans were. And she responded that the most important cultural value was hierarchy. Now, you see, in our, side, in our society today, we generally believe that everyone is equal, that everyone is of intrinsic value. But for the Romans, that was not true. They believed that some people were of more value than others, that some people had more intrinsic value. For instance, a citizen was worth a lot more than a non-citizen. A man was worth a lot more than a woman. A free person was worth a lot more than a slave. How a Roman would treat someone would depend directly on what category that person fell into. And it was always hard to sympathise or even care if a category that you perceived lower than yourself was suffering. Now, I found this a really interesting response to the question of what is the Romans' highest cultural values. Because during the height of the Roman Empire, where they controlled 5 million square kilometres, when they had 25% of the Earth's population living under their rule, in a small backwater region, a man came preaching about a new type of empire with radically different values. Now, this man was, of course, Jesus. And the thing he was preaching about was the kingdom of heaven. Now, according to the Bible, the kingdom of heaven is ruled by Jesus. And a time is coming where at his name every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth. Therefore, this kingdom, this empire, is worth understanding even more than the Roman Empire is worth understanding. And one of the first places in the Bible that we get a really substantial insight into this new kingdom that Jesus brings and the values it promotes is Jesus' first ever sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is the most famous one. And so 
hopefully tonight you are going to hear an above-average sermon about the best sermon ever preached. And so, please join me in prayer that that will be the case. Lord Jesus, we come before your word tonight humbly. We come before it hoping and asking that you will teach us yourself, that you will reveal what you are teaching here. Thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and for the fact that he recorded down the things that you taught in this sermon. Allow me to be faithful in how I explain it. Amen. Um, Now, it'd be really helpful if you had your Bibles open to the passage in Matthew 5. For those of you that do have your Bibles open to Matthew 5, you may notice that this section is called the Beatitudes. Now, the word Beatitude is just Latin word for blessed, because you can see that the first eight verses in that section all begin with the word blessed. Now, fun fact, it's pronounced blessed when it's a verb and blessed when it's an adjective. And so clearly the first thing I'm telling you is that blessed here is an adjective. But what does it mean to be blessed? Well, in our society, when we use the term hashtag blessed, we mean that we are happy or fortunate or in a good place. But that is not exactly what Jesus is saying here when he says that these people are blessed. You see, the word blessed in this passage is being used as a term of celebration and of recommendation. For those who want to fact-check Lachlan, I'm looking for you, Nick, wherever you are, Um, this is what Richard France, probably my favourite New Testament commentator on the book of Matthew, has to say. He says, neither blessed or happy adequately translates makarios, which is rather a term of congratulation and recommendation. Or, in another place, he writes, blessed is a misleading translation of makarios, which does not denote one whom God blesses but introduces someone who is to be congratulated, someone whose place in life is an enviable one. In other words, in these verses, Jesus is painting for us a picture of the ideal disciple, a disciple we would celebrate, a disciple we would recommend to others. He's painting a picture of what his kingdom looks like in contrast to the kingdom of those around him. And he's also painting a picture of the values of his kingdom in contrast to the kingdoms around him. And the very first thing he says about this true ideal disciple is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? A true disciple is poor in spirit? What does that even mean? Even without fully understanding what Jesus is saying here, you can see the contrast with the audience that he is listening to this. His audience grew up under Roman occupation. They knew the Roman values. And this first statement by Jesus totally, radically contradicts everything that they thought they knew about values. What sort of rubbish is Jesus preaching, they probably thought to themselves. Well, let's unpack this first beatitude just a little bit more. To be poor spiritually is to consciously recognise your dependent your dependence on God rather than yourself. It is admitting that you cannot live independently from God, but that you need to rely on God for everything. And what do disciples like this get? Well, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to or consists of such disciples. These disciples are truly members of God's kingdom. I find it incredible that here, at the very beginning of the most famous sermon ever given, 
Jesus flings the door to his kingdom wide open to all of those who are poor in spirit and therefore realize that they need God. As he does this, he also slams the door shut in the face of all those people proud of their own righteousness who think they can do it themselves. You see, Jesus is telling us all that his kingdom, his empire, does not belong to the moral, the religious, the powerful, the intelligent, or the rich. Instead, the kingdom belongs to those who struggle and know they need someone to help them in that struggle. Is this you? Then God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brings, is for you. At every point in this sermon, as is obvious from this very first verse, we are meant to confess our spiritual poverty and entrust ourselves fully to the king. Now, because of the mathematical way my brain works and because it's a personal aim of mine to sneak a graph or a table into every single sermon I ever give, I created this table to help me better understand the Beatitudes. You can see that they all start with the word blessed are, then it lists a trait, and then it lists the reward for this trait. This is God's word to us, just in table form. But we've already seen that blessed means the ideal disciple or the recommended disciple. And then we've also already come up with an interpretation for what poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven represents, which means we can begin to edit this table just a little bit. Now, to be clear, this is no longer God's exact words. This is now an interpretation of God's words. But I think it is an accurate and helpful one, because when we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we can understand that to mean the ideal disciple is one who depends on God, for they belong in God's kingdom. Now, hopefully that helps you understand this first beatitude just a little bit better. And so what we're going to do is spend the rest of this sermon filling out this table. Get excited. And so the second beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this one really does not require much simplification at all. For the ideal disciple is one who mourns, for they will be comforted by God. A true disciple of Jesus, a true member of God's kingdom, can and should mourn when appropriate. When Moses died in the Old Testament, the entire nation of Israel mourned for 30 days. When Job lost his children, he tore his robes, he shaved his head, and he sat in squalor in a state of mourning. When John the Baptist died, Jesus himself took time to be apart from his disciples and to mourn. And at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Jesus wept over the situation. Mourning is unfortunately a normal part of life. But mourning in God's kingdom is different. It is mourning with hope. It is mourning in light of coming comfort. In Roman society, when a family member died, you went into a nine-day period of mourning where you were isolated from the rest of the community because of your contact with death. In contrast to the Romans, God promises in Isaiah 61 verse 2 that being part of the coming messianic kingdom will be that God himself will bring comfort to those who mourn. He won't isolate you, he won't abandon you, but instead he will offer comfort. Life will be tough at points. There will be times in life where mourning is the appropriate response. And Jesus doesn't ask you not to mourn, but instead says that those who look to God in their mourning will receive comfort. 
Now, do you see how this beatitude beautifully mimics the first? They both ask us to recognize our need, to recognize what we lack, and then to look to God to fulfill that need. The third beatitude is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, the word meek is not a word that we use nowadays. A better word would be gentle or humble. The ideal disciple is one who is truly humble and gentle and recognises their correct position before the God of the universe. And because of this lowly posture before God, the humble disciple will be given something that they would never claim for themselves, the entire earth. Who do you think will take over the world? Will it be a re-emergent Roman Empire, a one-world government, Google, Mark Zuckerberg? According to Jesus, it is the humble and the gentle who will inherit everything. Now, all the people originally listening to this sermon grew up under Roman rule. Can you imagine meekness or gentleness or humbleness even being tolerated in Roman society? The entire basis for the power of the Romans was in their military might, Yet Jesus declares that in his kingdom, it is those who are gentle that will reign over everything. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time believing this, and I have an even harder time living this. I struggle to remove from my head the idea that money and power and muscle is what it takes to get ahead in life. But if Jesus really is Lord of God's kingdom, if he really did create the entire universe, then it is he who shapes all things. And he says that the meek, the humble, will inherit the earth. Matthew 11, verse 29, says that Jesus himself was meek. You see, when he was being crucified by the very Roman Empire I claim to admire, he definitely appeared very meek and very weak. When he was sitting in a grave, he looked meek and weak. But when he resurrected, he vindicated his entire worldview and he proved that the attitude that he had would allow him to rule over everything. You see, God's coming kingdom will extend over the whole earth. And so, in effect, the promise to inherit the whole earth is actually the same as the first promise because to inherit the whole earth is to belong in full to God's kingdom. Therefore, we could write up on our table that the ideal disciple is one who is truly humble, for they too belong to God's kingdom. The fourth beatitude is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness have a spiritual appetite, a continuing desire to grow in virtue and morality and justice and decency. They also desire a relationship of obedience and trust with God. And they are promised that that desire will be fulfilled. And this filling is not earned. It is not a payment. It is not a reward for good deeds. The blessed person is needy. They hunger and thirst. They do not have any of the right things that they need. And yet Jesus has a feast waiting to fill them. We are hungry, but Jesus transfers his righteousness to us. Because the ideal disciple is one who desires a life of personal righteousness, for they will have this desire fulfilled. Now, here we are. We're at the halfway mark of the Beatitudes. Notice how these first four Beatitudes have all described being empty before God and how He will fill us. 
The application from these first four Beatitudes couldn't be clearer. To be a disciple of Jesus is to realise that we do not have what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. But because of the grace and mercy of our God, he will give us what we need to be one of his disciples. If you have been trying to earn your place in God's kingdom, if you've been avoiding talking to the king of this kingdom because you don't think you yet measure up, then listen to the words of Jesus' greatest sermon and come before your creator, for he has what you lack. If that is you, then I want you to ignore the next few minutes of this sermon. Instead, I want you to pray to God, confess your emptiness and ask for his help. And then after the service, find someone you trust, perhaps one of your youth leaders, and ask them what is next. The fifth beatitude is, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, if the first four beatitudes are all about how God's, God lovingly gives us what we need, then the next four show us how we pass this love onto others. So in the same way that God has extended mercy to us, we extend mercy onto others. So, how do we apply this? Well, think about who you do not want to love. Who do you not want to bless? Who do you think does not deserve your kindness? Think about those people, because those are the very people the ideal disciple shows mercy to. If that concept feels strange, that is because it is the exact opposite attitude of every famous kingdom and society across history. The Romans did not extend mercy. Our society does not extend mercy. But Christians have already been shown mercy. And we will be shown more mercy when Jesus' kingdom comes in full. And so therefore, the ideal disciple is one who is merciful because they have already been shown mercy. The sixth beatitude is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, the pure in heart are those who love God with all of their heart and whose outward actions correspond to their inward nature. But are there many people like that? Proverbs 20 verse 9 says that no one has a pure heart. Psalm 24 reaches the same verdict. But the gospel is that Jesus has declared us clean. And since we have been declared clean, we live in such a way where our actions correspond to the cleanness and the purity that Jesus has bought for us. Do you struggle with purity? Jesus has declared you clean, so now seek to live that way. Do you struggle to match your inward nature with your outward actions? Jesus has declared you clean, so now seek to live that way. And as we live this way, we will see God in his kingdom, and people will see God in you. The ideal disciple is one whose outward actions correspond to their inward nature, for they will see God in his kingdom. The seventh beatitude is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To be a peacemaker is to show others how to have inward peace with God, but also to be an instrument of external peace in the world. And because of this attitude, they get to be called sons of God because they reflect God's own character. The God who sacrificed himself to make peace between heaven and earth wants his followers to also pursue peace. To seek peace would have been so foreign to anyone in Jesus' audience. Even today, conflict feels like a constant part of life. 
but as a disciple of Jesus follows his example and strives to make peace. But how do we do this? Well, just a few weeks ago, we had a seminar in this very room from an organisation called PeaceWise about how to be peacemakers. The seminar presented a simple four-part biblical framework for seeking peace. Now, it was an hour seminar. Here's the 30-second version. Step one, seek to glorify God within the conflict. Literally ask God how you could glorify him in this situation. Step two, Get the log out of your own eye, which means you need to take responsibility for the parts you have played in the conflict. Step three, attempt to gently restore the other person by helping them to see and take responsibility for their part in the conflict. And then step four, go and be reconciled, which means demonstrating forgiveness and finding reasonable solutions. Four easy steps to live out Jesus' command to be peacemakers. Now, if you didn't manage to write all that down, you can re-listen to the sermon later, or probably more helpfully, go find someone who was at that seminar and ask them more about what it taught to be a peacemaker. Because the ideal disciple is one who seeks internal and external peace, for they reflect God's character. Finally, the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this beatitude is actually unique because Jesus actually expands upon it by further explaining in verses 11 and 12 that blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you have been living as an ideal disciple of Jesus, if you have been offering mercy, if you've been living purely, if you've been making peace, then you will have been running against the grain of this world. And when you go against the grain, you tend to get splinters. Jesus himself was abused and slandered, so it should be no surprise that his followers will receive the same treatment. Indeed, it should make them glad because it shows that they are truly following in their king's footsteps. Now, other parts of the New Testament also talk about this pretty clearly. Consider 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, which says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I should probably clarify that in the next few verses here in 1 Peter, Peter effectively outlines that if you suffer for being a jerk, you sort of deserve it. But if you suffer for your faith, if you suffer because of being a Christian, rejoice. If you suffer insults from your friends who think you are dumb for living a life of dependence on God, Rejoice. If you suffer ridicule because you show mercy to the unpopular or hated kid at school, rejoice. If you feel like you are missing out because you pursue purity, rejoice. If people hate you because you don't allow bad-mouthing of others, but instead seek to restore broken relationships, rejoice. For our final beatitude reads, the ideal disciple is one who is persecuted because of their faith in Jesus for they belong to God's kingdom.
And there we have it, a completed table of the Beatitudes. It may look very structured up there, but what we have formed is actually meant to be a beautiful portrait of the ideal disciple. Now, Jesus' original listeners would have been shocked by this portrait. The hierarchy that was inherent in Roman culture has just been shattered by Jesus in 12 verses. And we too living today should also be challenged by this portrait. The ideal disciple is countercultural to basically every earthly culture. But that is because the ideal disciple is one who is looking towards a heavenly culture and a heavenly kingdom. This ideal disciple is the one that I recommend to you for emulation and celebrate with you every time any of us begins to look like them at all. So let me pray that we will all be like this disciple. Lord Jesus, again, thank you for the sermon that you preached on that mountainside. Thank you for the values of your kingdom, how they are radically different from this world. And I pray that everyone in this room would be filled with your spirit and assisted in living out these values, assisted in living as the ideal disciple. Amen.